All right. Thanks so much for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want more information on Park Hills, parkhillschurch.com, the Park Hills Church app, all of those things are available to you now. So Genesis 3 through 11, Pastor Mark and I are going to dive into that. Lots of fun things to talk about. Right, Pastor Mark? Yeah, you know, there's no shortage of questions that people have, including myself as I go through. I get more questions each time, it seems like. Yes. Uh, Some very popular questions that come along and even some that we hadn't even discussed, like uh, where, you know, when do we see... uh, various races emerging mm. and things like that. Yeah. Also, you've got, you know, all the flood questions and things like that. But one of the ones that is really curious, and if you're reading quickly through it, you don't really notice it. But if you stop and think about it, something's really unique here in the beginning of Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. This is an interesting uh, uh, phraseology here. Saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. That's interesting as well. Yep. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So we got some fascinating stuff going on here. It's a nice, easy passage to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of ideas here about what these uh, uh, <laughs> people, who these people were and what was going on. And even reaches further down into scripture, even when we think of these being these uh, mighty men of old. And then you got an interesting character like Goliath show up. Later on, yep. Who's uh, this abnormally large person, which, uh, which, by the way, I find offensive, uh, being a little bit of a bigger man myself. I, I find that those terminologies offensive. But, and, and even... <laughs> Uh, in Genesis or in First Samuel twenty-one, the brother factor of Goliath. So, uh, Chris, what are some of the theories about there about even some of these connections and even who the sons of God were? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I just thought I'd throw you a little, so <laughs> a little lob there, a little. Soft. We, we yeah. did talk this one through, so I'm not totally surprised. <laughs> I can't say that I'm surprised. So, first off, easy one. It says here, 
that God said, I, my spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. There's, there's two ways to read that. One is that God would not allow man to live for 120 years as an individual, which you start to see scripture lining up with that many years after the flood, but it takes a number of generations. So it could be that God is going to whittle down man's age to the point where they can never live longer than 120 years, which is interesting because science tells us actually that our bodies break down right around 120 years. There's no way our bodies could survive at the rate that we're doing. Which makes for some fascinating questions about some of the age of these uh, Bible characters. Yes. And why why were they so old beforehand? And then after the flood, why are they? Why are the ages going down? And that's what I'm saying. I don't really know why or how to make that work, but it's part of that. The other way to read that, and I think this is probably the, the better way, is that the flood was going to happen 120 years after God said this thing. Right. So my, my spirit with man is, you know, I'm not happy with them. I'm not going to abide with them. I'm going to wipe them out in 120 years. I think it's the better reading of that. But part of why God will not abide with them is because there's some weird things happening with these other verses. And so there's two main uh, trails of thought. One is made popular by Augustine uh, in early, he's an early church father who reads this and says, there's no way to read this from an angelic perspective. The best way to read it would be that the sons of men uh, and, or sorry, the daughters of man and the sons of God are two different lines from Adam. So the sons of God in his mind, because if you go back to chapter five, uh, Adam starts having these sons and Adam is a son of God. So since Adam is made by God and he's a son of God, all of his children would have been called sons of God. And then Augustine's point is that the daughters of men would have been all of the line from Cain. So you've got Cain who's got a mark on him. He's a special individual and his daughters are going this way and, and the sons of God. And they start to, you know, be married and, and have children. And as they do that, you know, these incredible individuals are born who are powerful and mighty. That's, that's the one reading. That's the most popular reading within a lot of the evangelical church, only because Augustine has such a strong hold in Western theology. The downside with that is it's not at all how the Jews read it and how the Jews read it and then really how the rest of scripture starts to spell it out suggests that something much weirder is happening, which has been made popularized in certain movies like City of Angels and other weird, like there's these things about angels showing up and and being attracted to women and what does that mean? All of that comes from this passage. And so the other way to read it is sons of God is used every once in a while about humans. It's talked about Israel. It's talked about Adam and his children. But it's also talked about the sons of God being angelic beings of some sort. So whether we're talking about really high up angelic beings or lower angelic beings, you know, wherever they are in the hierarchy, you know, who knows. But these individuals, these sons of God, either were cast down out of, out of the presence of the Lord or they decided to rebel against God. And as they're wandering around the, the world doing God's work, they realize that women are attractive and they decide to start. Which being is fascinating. Them. Totally. That, that itself. You know. <laughs> There's so much to unpack here. Uh, in fact, so much so that I, I've, I've started to work some of my doctorate to, I'm going to work this through uh, with a class here at Park Hills. And then if that turns, you know, if, if my doctorate goes well, then I'll, you know, I'll open that class up to other people as well. But there's some weird things going on here. And if that's the case, if there are sons of God, meaning angelic beings and daughters of men being, you know, normal women, and they're creating individuals who are mighty men of old, 
then that means that there's something special about these individuals. And so when you get to Goliath, you realize that this guy's a giant, he's huge, he's way bigger than everybody else. And you start to go, is that what's happening? Are these mighty men really giant warrior fighter men who are significantly taller than normal people? Because they are descendants of sons of God or these angelic mighty beings. Yeah, which is what the (laughs) Jews believed. I mean, the way that the Jews read the scriptures, if you... If you start here, this opens up a, a bunch of discussions all the way through the pages. You know, when we get to Deuteronomy, there'll be some unpacking of this. When we get to, yeah, man, the scriptures are actually full of this idea that humans don't want to do things God's way, so they try to take things and matters into their own hand, and as they do so, things go really, really poorly. So I think, personally, the best reading of this is when we talk about Nephilim, there's two ways to read it. One would be fallen ones, one would be giant ones. Either one of those kind of spells the same idea, that these people are, are giant people of old. And that's weird, and it makes us go, I don't know what to do with this. But going back to what I said a second ago, we're talking about the flood. I think some people look at the flood as just God hating humanity. He doesn't hate humanity. He loves humanity. Otherwise, he wouldn't have saved them with Noah. But part of what he's actually wiping from the face of the earth is these relationships that shouldn't be happening between beings that shouldn't be happening. You know what I'm saying? So if you've got angels and humans, which aren't supposed to be mixing, mixing, and they're creating people that don't, ex- you know, that aren't right or don't exist, uh, God should deal with that. And he does. That's, that's part of what the Jewish understanding was, is that God was wiping out in the flood, uh, this idea. And I, even when I say the Jewish understanding, that's probably the main school of thought in Judaism, but there are, granted there's other schools of thought that would have agreed with Augustine as well. Does that help at all? Yeah. So what, you know, so where did they go? That becomes the other question. Uh, uh, you know what? We'll leave that out there as a teaser. How about that? Uh, <laughs> I know it teases your mind. Yeah. Well, let me, I, I will deal with it really quick. The, the Jews believed that the spirits of these individuals after they died in the flood didn't leave the planet. They were wandering around the earth looking for people to possess. So when you get to the New Testament, it's not a surprise that demon-possessed people have strength and power. Because if you remember here, these are mighty men. These are powerful warrior beings. Uh, Even using terms like I am legion, that's a warrior term of the ancient world. There's there's something there about these are actually the the souls that are wandering the earth from these improper relationships. And they, they have nowhere to go. They can't go to hell or, or heaven because they don't belong in either of those places. And so they're just wandering the earth trying to make things miserable for people. Fun. Yeah, it's quite a thought. It's a weird thought. I don't know how I feel about it, but it's out there. You know, we want to remind you when we talk about these things too, that, uh, Again, we're, we're kind of passing on some theories or even some theories yep. that uh, are derived in our minds or in Chris's mind or whatever. And again, we don't want to pre- preach them as, as gospel truth, but just th- there are questions that, they're, they're, let's face it, there's going to be things that we want to clarify mm-hmm. with, with God uh, only when we have that time where, or at least for the people that find that fun to find, you know, there might be others of, of us that are just in heaven. We're not worried about what all these things right. and, I'm pretty sure uh, Chris for sure, and uh, I would probably join him with. If there's a, going, if there's okay, like a corner, what was this? Yeah, if there's a corner in the kingdom of God where it says like weird topics over here, you can probably guarantee that I've I've been under there for <laughs> ten thousand years or so, just asking questions. Hey, what do we do about this? <laughs> so, an interesting little story we hear after the flood 
in Genesis 9 uh, is that it starts in verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse be Canaan. This is fascinating. Mm -hmm. A, a, A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servants. Uh, it's interesting there that Canaan comes up. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, there's a face value of this story that seems pretty pretty simple here. You know, a father is just uncovered. He, he uh, it's embarrassing. Ham's mm-hmm. like, uh, dad's a mess in there. And the other guys are like, well, let's at least dignify him by covering him up. Uh, and that would maybe be the simplest way to look at that. Right. But there are some other theories out there. And, and Canaan, uh, there's some significance in that. Why Canaan? He, why didn't he say cursed be, you know, Ham? Uh, right. So here we go. <laughs> uh, I will warn you that if you if you're listening with kids, you know I'll, I'll let you make up your mind here what you want to do. We're not going to push in anything super weird, but you just need to understand this topic isn't like the best for kids. So if you've got super little ones, maybe push pause and then you know get them out of the room and you can talk later or you know listen to it later tonight when they're in bed or whatever. So there's my warning. Uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So the start, go back to verse 18 quick. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you haven't noticed yet, the scriptures lay out birth order this way. So every time someone's born, it always starts with the firstborn first, then the second, then the third. So if you start with the fact that Shem would have been the oldest child of Noah, then Ham, then Japheth, uh, you go, okay, I see there's a birth order there. And then it's interesting that in 18, it says Ham was the father of Canaan. Why in the world does that come out at all? So then you scroll down the story a little bit and you get to the part that you just read. And it is, again, interesting. Why would Noah curse Canaan and why wouldn't Noah curse Ham? And it's even weirder if you jump to chapter 10 and you look at verse 6. It says, the sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put, and Ka, you know Canaan would actually be the proper, but we say Canaan because it's easier to say. Uh, so why Canaan is the fourth child of Ham. Why would Noah, curse first him. of all, curse Ham's kid? And then second, why would he curse Ham's fourth kid? If you're going to curse a child, sometimes you curse the firstborn. You know, there's this weird story. So let's break it down. There's there's really three big views of what's happening in this tent. First thing is Noah is, you know, all the stories agree. Noah's drunk. Something bad is happening in the tent. The first one is just that Ham goes in, sees his dad's naked, makes fun of him, goes back out, tells his brothers, his brothers back in, like the yeah, story you described. At, look at dad, what, what an idiot. At face know. value, that's the one that, that it's easy to read. It, you know, you can just run with it. 
The second one is reading a little bit more into the text. And if you read it, you know, in Hebrew, they don't use words like, you know, such and such happened or such and such happened. Like later on, it'll say, and this person knew this person, and then they had this child. They use words like knew. Yeah. So we take the word knew and we're like, oh, there's more going on there. Yeah, so when new, it's new means more than that. Yeah. Correct. And we've read a lot as we've been reading along in Genesis, it's went into and so yes. we know what's going on there. So a lot have pointed out that when it says he saw his father's nakedness, that there's probably a, a little bit of a of an innuendo there that perhaps there was more happening in the tent and maybe he was being inappropriate with his dad in some way. Some have even said as far as castration, he might have done something to try to end the father's line. And so he then curses Ham's son and says, may your, your son be cursed. Uh, maybe that, but that's, that's the kind of the second view. So the first view is that it's, it's in our minds, it's really innocent. You saw your dad's nakedness. You made fun of him. Like, why did you get cursed for that? Why does your son get cursed for that? It doesn't make a ton of sense. The second one is, oh, there's more happening. Like I said, something really inappropriate happening. And then Noah's response is, well, then may your line have a curse on it as well. And maybe Canaan, you know, being the youngest child, he's like, you know, I'm going to curse your youngest child because, you know, you stopped me from having another child. And so since I can't have another, you know, I'm going to curse your youngest. That's, that's the second one. The third one is a little weirder, and it deals with a little bit later in the law. As you're reading through it— I don't know. The second one was pretty weird, too. Well, this one gets way weirder. So later on in the law, when you're reading in Leviticus and and in Deuteronomy, there's going to be these these mentions made of, do not do this with this person because that is your father's nakedness. And what's ironic is it's never talking about your actual father. It's saying, you know, your mother, your mother-in-law, your— you know, stepmother, your your father's wife, it says, it even says, you know, your sister, your sister-in-law, your brother's sister. And God starts to lay out these laws that say, I, I want you to marry outside of your family. And we know that because genetic code is important and we don't want to mess it all up. And God gives these great rules. But when you start to read through the pages of, of the word father's nakedness is applied to a lot of different types of, of nakedness, not just yours, but your wife or your, you know, your daughter, any of those types of things. So what some have proposed, and I think this might be the best reading of the text, in my opinion, is that what actually is happening here is Ham goes in the tent. Both Noah and Noah's wife have uh, gotten drunk. They're, you know, they're in a weird position and things are not uh, as they seem. Ham takes advantage of, of one member of the tent, if you're following my logic here without getting super graphic. And as he takes advantage of one of those people, that person gets pregnant. And so it's possible that Noah actually is cursing Canaan because Canaan is the child of Ham with Ham's mom. Which would make sense why the, he's cursing the one child, the youngest child. In this yes. Case. And then if you run down that logic, what he's cursing Canaan for is the fact that Canaan is actually not a part of the correct family line and it's breaking rules that he knows God wouldn't want to be. And so he's, he's making that statement. And it really follows with the logic of what we've already, you know, what we're going to see in Genesis, especially, you know, next week when we're dealing with the family of God on this Sunday coming up. And then we talk about it next week in the podcast. God's family gets bigger through Abraham really quickly. And in fact, Abraham's you know, nephew Lot has two children in really weird circumstances. 
And so you start to build a case throughout scripture. The Canaanites came from a weird situation. The Moabites came from a weird situation. The Ammonites came from a weird situation. Uh, the Amalekites, the, the Midianites, all of them come from a weird situation and they're not held to the same esteem as God's people are. And all of that makes a lot of sense if you go back even to... Um, Go back to chapter 6 and look at verse 9 real quick. These are the generations of Noah or the family line of Noah. And I want you to notice what it says. Noah was a righteous man. We all know that, right? We, we believe Noah, and it says a little bit later, Noah walked with God. So we, that's what we take as righteous, that he's walking with God. But then it says blameless in his generation. And so there are a number of scholars who have pointed out that it's possible that the reason why Noah is saved in this story is, is partly because Noah is a blameless, righteous man who's walking with God, but also partly because Noah is a human of true human roots. He's got no weirdness going on in his family line, which would explain why he might curse Canaan, because now there's a weirdness going on in his family line. So you know what I'm saying? Like if you start to dig a little bit, the text gives us more answers than we think, but we have to really stop and, and rethink and rethink and rethink. And the weird thing is my brain works like this, and I sit and read and like, what is going on? And then I go find articles written by scholars that nobody wants to read. And then I dig and dig and dig. And then I find a podcast or two. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that makes total sense. And then I put it on a podcast for our people to listen to. And then they can mock me behind closed doors and make fun of how weird I am. Yeah. I mean, reading that passage at its face value, you'd have to go, that's a stretch. But just the passage you were referencing, and one of them, uh, Leviticus 20, verse 11 if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death and their blood is upon them. So it, the it, text makes sense. It does lean it, you know, help you lean a little bit more toward maybe that's what's going on because it seems like it's a lot more than that. And, and the Canaan thing might speak to that right. pretty clearly. Which then it goes back to what I mentioned in the sermon as well. The curse of Cain and the curse of Canaan have nothing to do with race. And I, I hate that our our culture has even made it that. Like we've, we've made some really weird things out of really basic passages. This isn't a matter of Canaan is cursed because he has a different color than his brothers or sisters or grandchildren. Like has nothing to do with that. This has more to do with there's been a breach of God's law and that is going to have eternal consequences. There's no other way around it. So we even read curses as if God is going to curse and curse and curse. It should be interesting then when you're reading that Judah marries a Canaanite. It should be interesting then that Judah's son is married to a Canaanite who then is passed down to another son who's passed down to another son. And God redeems a lot of these things. So it's it's not even internal curse in the sense that you think the the curse is. You know what I'm saying? We, we sometimes take the, the text at, at face value in chapter 10 of Genesis or chapter 9 of Genesis and we go... Canaanites are cursed. That's why they're destroyed by the Israelites. That's not exactly totally what's going on because much later in the text, there are going to be individuals who are redeemed out of their Canaanite affiliation and brought into the family of God. So we need to, we need to put our hats on here as we're reading through the text and go, there's probably way more than we realize. And it's better for us to get to know the text really deeply and keep digging, keep digging, keep digging. So that by the end of it, we go, whoa, look at God's redemptive story. How beautiful this is. You know, I gain more from the Bible every time I read it. And honestly, this reading plan mixed with these identifying these themes, I think is just going to 
help everyone grow with a greater understanding. And it'll even help you when you come to those genealogy passages, not to just glaze over and buzz through them, but to realize those are in there for a purpose and they help us connect dots in some of these things. And again, understanding the whole of scripture really just helps us see the, the grand, the greatest story a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, we hope that was enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) I always joke with Mark when we talk about these things that, uh, you know, if he, if he asks the question and leads us into it, he's responsible for whether I still work here or not. So, (laughs) 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 so, you know, but the truth is I want, I want to be really clear too, with what we're saying. I, we're, as, as Mark said a little bit ago, we're not making a case one way or the other. I'm just showing you that the text a lot of times answers itself. And sometimes the answer in the text is even more awkward than we'd like it to be. But that's probably part of what God's trying to point out to us is humans get really messed up really quickly, especially, uh, well, no, not especially, always when they take matter in their own hands and do things their way versus the way God wants it done. Not only does that affect their family, but it affects the way God is going to deal with their family for generations and generations, not because he hates them or wants them all to die, but because they're just natural consequences to these things. Yeah, and humanity is messy. Yes. It just is. From this point of rebellion on, it's messy. And so, yeah, some of these ideas and theories as to what these things mean are shocking, but is not the text already shocking? What we've read, the craziness of humanity already uh, this early on after the rebellion in the garden and the sin. I mean, so it makes some of these theories a little more viable too, but it makes us realize we are so desperately in need of a redeemer and God has a plan. Amen to that. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.